This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello, and welcome to Season 6, Episode 5 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And this is Part 4 in our series on Harv Bennett, looking at uh, the television shows which he created. And uh, this is going to be a look at the, I guess, technically fourth show that he created, although the third show that we're covering. Which is Time Tracks. Yes, Time Tracks. Time Tracks. Yes. From, uh, which is now, now getting into the, the area where I'm a little bit more familiar with television since I was born at this point in time. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Time Tracks. Jumping ahead about 18 years to 1993. Yes. This... this series debuted actually it was literally the week before deep space nine debuted uh it was in syndication much like deep space nine probably on a lot of the same channels as deep space nine here in chicago it was on wpwr power 50 which is the channel that aired next generation all right um so i remember seeing all the commercials i remember the commercials vividly and i remember thinking like I'm not going to watch that show. <laughs> Even though the and X at the end of Tracks indicated the futuriness of it, you didn't watch. That's disappointing. That's true. That's true. That's true. But I was just kind of just getting into sci-fi at that point, so I guess that's my excuse. If it had been a few years later, probably would have been hardcore into it. Fair enough. But I even remember seeing like the, the uh, ads. They would be like, from producer Harv Bennett. You know, Star Trek producer Harv Bennett, you know, and, and thinking like, oh, yeah, that guy. Um, <laughs> and this was like his big return to television. It stars Dale Midkiff, uh, who I guess is known for Pet Cemetery. I don't know. And he plays a guy who is a, a cop, yes, I guess. A detective. From the future. 200 years in the future, to be exact. That's right. 2193. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't know, can you give sort of a, a, a plot synopsis of this thing or, or something like that? Oh, wow. Um, it is it basically, you know, actually the premise of the show is, uh, is the part that I like best about it. Um, it's basically somebody has cracked time travel and they are sending people back in time to uh, help them escape uh, uh, you know, justice, basically. Basically, criminals are using time travel as a get-out-of-jail-free card, literally. And naturally, they're all being sent back to the 20th century because of the production values. Makes it much easier to make the show. And this, uh, this detective is sent back in time, and he's given a weapon so that he can inject them with the drug because a catalyst for time travel is a drug. And you can only take it... Um, so you can only do like one round trip, otherwise the drug's going to kill you, um, with one notable exception in the course of the show. Uh, but he, so he travels back in time, and his mission is to round up these people and 
inject them and hit a button and send them back. And he communicates with the future by taking out ads in the Washington Post so that they can read them in the future. Yeah. And there's like a a very strange coincidental correlation where um, when they go back in time, like their time is linked to the time which they can send people back to. So they are always sending people back in time exactly 200 years. Yes. There's no leeway there. It's whatever the date is, you're going to go back exactly 200 years that day. Why? Well, I don't know. It's kind of, well, the, I, it, it sort of speaks to the, the limited nature, like the small tool that they send back with him. You know, like it speaks to the simplicity of it. So, I, you know. I mean, it's I, fine know, from a I'll storytelling premise. I, I just think it's a little weird and convenient that somehow time travel and this weird scientific <laughs> thing is somehow linked to a very round number. A very okay. round, arbitrary number. <laughs> okay, I mean I see that's your point. strange. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, I I concede that point. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Fair enough. Like, see, if I were doing this, instead of setting it two hundred years in the future, I'd be like, I'm setting it, you know, a hundred and fifty-seven years in the future. You know, yeah. And it's just like a, a weird thing there, where it's like, yeah, it's you know, it's, you, you got to do some math in order to figure out exactly when, but it's always the same interval of time. It's just a weird, you know, I don't think I would have made it exactly 200 years to the day. I, I don't know. know. I, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's strictly storytelling so that they don't have to explain math or anything. You know, like it, it, it injects them with something and they go 200 years, period. End of sentence, done. Yeah, yeah. And there's some, you know, I mean, other little things that they have set up here in this, in this show. Like, uh, well, there's a big bad guy who's... Yeah. Played by uh, Mulder's dad from the X Files. <laughs> yep, and um, then he has a, uh, a, a a partner, I guess you could say, who is an artificial intelligence, a hologram, uh, who exists on a little, on a very high tech piece of equipment where it's like all of the knowledge of the world on, on the size of a credit card not just any credit card mike an at&t mastercard oh that's very important because in the future you know the corporate wars will have been settled by both of those companies (laughs) it's probably (laughs) true right (laughs) (laughs) well i mean uh, yeah (laughs) and continental airlines who uh gets a loving shot in the beginning of uh of episodes yeah that that's pretty crazy actually that was like straight up out of a a, an airline (laughs) commercial but yeah whatever um, also, Chicago Cubs, they get a shout out, but it's one of those backhanded things. Like you can never like talk about the Chicago Cubs, especially in a futuristic thing, without taking a jab at the fact that you know they <laughs> yeah. can't ever make it to the World Series. Like yep. this, this cap belongs to my grandfather, who's played on the last Cubs World Series team back in whatever it was. Yeah. Although I, I will say that that. Cubs cap that they had, that is not a <laughs> historically accurate Cubs cap. People don't. I mean, it's the cheap. It's like they really like went to Walgreens and bought a Cubs cap. It's the worst Cubs cap I've ever seen. Well, I would say, judging by the production value of the show, that they were operating on a shoestring at best. <laughs> 
This is probably true. Yeah, the special effects, maybe not the best in the world, especially when you compare them to, like, DS9, which yeah. came out the same exact week, essentially, you know? Yep. It's very it's very strange. I mean, part of it was, I think, that there was sort of, like, this new frontier going on with visual effects, and they were like, we can do CGI, sort of, and cheaply, and it's crazy how much we can do now that we could never do in the past. Yeah. But a lot of that stuff is stuff that they probably shouldn't have been doing. Yeah, you know? but it also speaks to something that you uh, you highlighted in a previous uh, episode where we were talking about Bennett, where the show very much smacks of a producer saying, I can do that for cheaper. Yeah. You know, like it, 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 this very much has the flair of somebody where they say, you know, I need $2 million to make this show. You've got $100,000. I can do it. Yeah. Very much has that flavor. And it's kind of interesting looking at it, like, in in terms of the rest of his career, where he was always sort of, he had his hand on the pulse of, of what was going on, you know? Whether it's the mod squad and, and sort of being ahead of the game in, in that respect, or, uh, you know, the Invisible Man, I think in a lot of ways, sort of piggybacking on what was going on in terms of the trend of, of shows like that, like we talked about with Invisible Man and Incredible Hulk and yeah. that sort of thing. And here, I think what, he, what, what we see happening is, like, he obviously has a fondness for science fiction. And, you know, having sort of left television, in a sense, to go do these movies, like the Star Trek movies and stuff like that, it's like once that kind of dries up, which is what happened, you know, I mean, he stopped making the Star Trek movies. He left after... Uh, Star Trek Six kind of fell through. At least his version of Star Trek Six kind of fell through. Yeah. So he returns to television, and it's like, well, where are we at now? Where is the sci-fi on television? You, well, I guess you could go to Fox, but you're going to get canceled in a, in a month unless you're the X Files. The uh, yeah, well, which I mean, wasn't the, even on yet, right? Uh, no, th- this is right around the time X Files. Like, um, I think that I, I think that you you're hitting on an interesting point here where it's this, this is, I think an honest moment of where the timing was just a little bit off. I think if this show had come to, uh, come to syndication or network or anything, just one or two years later, I think they would have gotten more funding and had more time to work on it. And, you know, uh, you know, sand off the rough edges because you would have been into that arc of X files. Highlander was out there. Um, you, you know, and it was the Star Trek renaissance. So, you know, like, wow, there were two shows, you know, going on and like, that's, that's a pretty big thing. And so I I think that just timing killed it. Yeah. He was just ahead of the curve. Like in terms of the concept, he's a little bit behind the curve because I mean, this really does feel like quantum leap, doesn't it? Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. It feels like quantum leap with no budget. Yeah, and this would have aired, I mean, if, if I've got my my dates correct or somewhat correct, but basically this was starting up as Quantum Leap was ending. Yes. You know? And uh, it's like Quantum Leap, Quantum Leap, but without the sense of humor, I think, without the, the charisma of of uh, Scott Bakula yes. and Dean Stockwell. I yeah. mean, it's, it's and, and without the, the, the really strong hook, you know? Yeah. And, but but this one has a sort of a semi decent hook, but not not one which is, you know, uh 
as compelling as Quantum Leap, not one where you're jumping through time, you know, but obviously Quantum Leap had a much higher budget too, I think. Well, I mean, Quantum Leap's whole concept, you know, they were able to go, uh, you know, Quantum Leap is sort of, I think, what this show would have aspired to be because Quantum Leap, they could jump to different time periods and they could have all of these different um, issues and themes that they were exploring. Whereas this, like you said, he goes back 200 years, period. That's how far back you are. And so we're filming everything in 1993, and that's just the way it's going to happen. And now it's basically just going to be like a cop show. Right. Where it's like there's going to be the futuristic villain of the week. Yes. And, you know, what what does that mean? You know, usually the same thing over and over again, I imagine. Yes. Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy to think that they were able to do Quantum Leap at all. I mean, it was basically an anthology show which was running through time. I mean... Yeah, each one was a period piece. That's insane to think that they were able to do that on a weekly basis on TV. Yeah, yeah, they did, and it, you yeah. know that's uh, you know, so you can't catch lightning in a bottle twice, and I think yeah. Time Tracks proves that. And I mean, watching it, I know that part of it is the transfer on a disc and everything like that, but man, just this show, watching it, I I did not watch it on the air, you know, when it, when it was on. Watching it now, though, it very much it felt like slipping into the, you know, the John of so many years past. Like you said, the 90s is really where my television watching really took off. That's really where my focus is. And this felt like one of those things I stumbled on when it was four o'clock on a Saturday and it was too damn hot to go outside and so it was anything as an excuse not to move from the couch. And th- this felt like that type of show where it was like, this, yeah, okay, fine, I'll sit here. Because even the title, like, like and just, and I know that this is going to seem extremely silly uh, because, you know, we should be focusing on the concept and everything, but the production value, like, they they did so many, I felt, gratuitous things in terms of trying to force these halfway matte paintings over like the Smithsonian Institution and, you know, DC and stuff like that, that especially being a DC area native, like it just really takes you out of the show to see these sort of uh, low rent matte paintings trying to render the way things were going to look or are going like they the quality of the transition shots showing future buildings was less than that of you know like uh, of showing the klingon homeworld in star trek or something like that like where it was obviously a matte painting but this was this was like a step beneath that where it, because it seemed so ambitious because they were trying to meld live plates with matte paintings and it just didn't mesh it didn't work yeah, you know, I mean, they hadn't quite worked out the 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 visual thing in terms of like, well, this is, is film and this is video and you put it together yeah. and it doesn't quite work. I mean, there's a lot of that going on on Babylon 5 as well, you know. Oh, sure. I, yeah. I always remembered like looking at that and thinking like these effects are horrible, you know. Um, but it is, I mean, that, that does kind of speak to, I mean, it definitely does have that feel and that aesthetic quality that is associated with the syndicated sci-fi of the time. I mean, we were talking yeah. about some of those things that were out there. I mean, Hercules and Xena were there too and everything like that. Yeah. And it, it really was, like you were saying, I think just a couple years ahead of the curve because um, 
it didn't have the quality or anything like that as uh, of a lot of these things which did last but in terms of like the production value and everything it wasn't that far off from what we got with um yeah. earth the final conflict or something like that you know yeah that no that yeah the the video revolution and whatnot mm-hmm. sure yeah so you know whatever i guess i guess it was just uh, a, a little too ahead of its time in terms of concept but i mean what did you think about the the show on the whole now you watched the pilot, and then did you watch anything else or not? Uh, I, I watched a couple of other episodes. Uh, I'm not going to lie that it it failed to capture the imagination in quite the same way uh, <laughs> as other shows of the past. I know it seems like I'm going down the negative Nelly route uh, with you know Invisible Man, and then this, and it's that. That's why I'm trying to look at it in terms of a concept. In terms of a concept, this is the type of show where I think nowadays would have been fleshed out and instead of cramming everything about his backstory into a five-minute voiceover in the pilot episode, they would have spent real energy developing the, the moment until he goes back in time. This is a good... The, sh- the concept for this show is good. I like the concept. I think it's neat. Even, even the you're going back 200 years and you're stuck and we're not going anywhere besides 1993. The fish out of water Star Trek four concept is just fine by me. Like that can still make for an interesting show. And so the, the concept is, is there and there there's, I I think that you said it best. It's lacking the charisma. I think, and you know, I don't, I don't want to take anything away. You know, all actors work hard. All actors have various strengths but without the charisma of a Scott Bakula or, you know, I, I actually kept thinking of the original Star Trek where it really is the charisma and the, the, the wherewithal of those actors that power those cheap sets and flimsy plots at times. And that's what this show is kind of missing. And what's unfortunate is you get that feeling that they're trying to capture that same sort of zeitgeist and it's just it's just in the execution it just it just fails to sell itself yeah yeah i agree it's uh it's simplistic it's 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 yeah. not it it doesn't live up to its concept it's almost like everything that was special about it is what was uh um present in in this in the setup in the pilot and then once you get into the individual episodes, it just becomes sort of, you know, this formulaic thing with with a semi-interesting hook. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm pretty much in agreement with you that, that it just really wasn't wasn't uh, interesting at all. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just, this is definitely did not uh, hold up for me. You know, I kind of had some some semi-high hopes for it because of of the nostalgia aspect for this thing sure. that I had never seen. I'm like, maybe this will be the this hidden gem, which I, I missed in, in, in the 90s or whatever. That's not the case. No, it is not. It's just a missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, I, I only watched the pilot, you know, which was like a two-hour pilot that Bennett wrote. And he's also in, by the way. I don't know if you saw him. No, I missed the, it. He's the news reporter on the TV. In the oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that. Okay, yeah. yes, yes, <laughs> yes. But um, 
I, the, the only other episode that I watched, I was going to watch some of the other ones that Bennett wrote himself, but I opted instead to watch the episode, which was written by David Lowry, yes. who is the writer of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And I mean, looking back at, you know, sort of their history, they obviously had sort of a good relationship. You know, he, I think they first worked together on Star Trek V, and then they tried to do the uh, Starfleet Academy movie together, mm-hmm. or they did do the Starfleet Academy movie together. You know, he wrote the script there. And here it is a couple of years later, and it's like, hey, you know, want to write an episode of my TV show? So yeah. so they, they, they did that. He actually wrote another episode during season two, which, by the way, this show lasted two seasons before being canceled. So kind of like amazing, 40, honestly. Yeah, yeah, like 44 episodes and everything. And you can get them um, through, well, you can get them on like Amazon and stuff, but they're available through the Warner Archive thing where they they basically, for for like movies and television shows, which may not be big enough to justify a, a, a wide DVD release, yeah. what they do is they essentially make them to order. Oh, yeah. Then, MODs? Sure. Yeah. 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 So that's that's what that's how this show is available, which is cool. Um, so yeah, I watched the David Lowry episode. Did you happen to watch that one? I did not watch that one. How was it? Not good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the pilot was substantially better, but this one, I don't know. You could see that they were kind of trying to get outside of the box a little bit in terms of the uh, the formula, although it is hugely coincidental as well, where like. He goes, he's like out in the desert and he runs into like a cowboy and the cowboy helps him out. And then he finds out that basically this cowboy is the guy who he's looking for, the criminal. Of course he is. But what happened was he's been in the past for like 20 something years and now he's basically made a new life for himself. It's basically um, Clint Eastwood and Unforgiven, you know? He's he's seen the error in his ways, and he's sort of found a nice, quiet corner of the 20th century, and he's no longer, you know, an evil bad guy or whatever. He's just reformed, and he's like, I'm quiet, I'm keeping to myself, I'm just doing my thing. And, you know, he's like, I still got to take you down, but I don't want to take you down because you're a nice guy. I can see that you've changed. And that's where the conflict comes in, you know. So what does he do at the end of the episode? Spoiler alert. What does he do? What does he do? <laughs> there's, like, another bad guy, too, because, like, there's a guy who, like, steals his car and all this other stuff. So I think he was from the, the present. Honestly, I don't remember the details, even though I watched it, like, three days ago. <laughs> and um, I think in the end what happens is the bad guy from the future who is reformed ends up sacrificing himself to save, um, I'm going to call him Time Tracks because I don't know his name. <laughs> so I'm going to say that his name is Time Tracks, okay. Captain Time Tracks. Captain Time Tracks. I like Captain <laughs> Time Tracks. That works. It, it works, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, that that actually sounds like, um, yeah, way predictable. That's unfortunate. That uh, they could have at least sent the uh, the car thief back in place of the other guy and said it was that guy and had him trapped. So, oh, yeah, they could that, have done that, know. too. Yeah, I, the, the, the one thing that I, I did enjoy about the show was the, uh, <laughs> despite the fact that the entire world has realigned and uh, white people are the minority and everything like that, 
they still have crazy German dude trying to bring the Fourth Reich around. Yeah. And I'm like, man, these guys just never give up, do they? Yeah. And they're always like he, he and he steals the he steals John Wilkes Booth's pistol yeah. to assassinate the UN president. And it's like it is the craziest thing ever. Yeah. That, that, that's another weird thing is like with the Smithsonian stuff, you know, Yeah. like basically they're like, well, we need to send you back in time and we need you to be wearing like appropriate clothes. And they're like, well, we have all that stuff because it's all in the Smithsonian. <laughs> so like, like he's, yeah. he's in, he's in the, in the West driving down the street or whatever with his, you know, hologram. And he's like trying to like sing country music or something like that. And she's like, what are you doing? You know, this is a bad idea. You should not be singing. And he's like, I'm sorry. You know, I'm I'm wearing Elvis Presley's jeans. What do you expect me to do? You know, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Which and is the, bizarre. <laughs> it is. It's extremely bizarre because in this wonderful future that they've constructed, which really isn't that wonderful. It's sort of dystopian when you think about it. Uh, like there's. They, they couldn't, like, replicate... Not, I, wow, Star Trek fan coming out there. But, like, they couldn't find some way to construct clothes that looked like stuff from the past. Or, like, why... You know, that, that's like saying we can, you got to go back and you can only drive a car that matches that. So we're going to get you an antique Packard and you're going to have to drive that in the past. Yeah, not to mention the fact that, like, in an effort to, like, grab these criminals, they're essentially sacrificing all of these, you know, theoretically priceless artifacts, you right. know? Yeah. And well, and never mind the fact that he spends... wardrobe. <laughs> well, he spends no time. And I, I get it that the, the hook for the show is so that he can ask the, the hologram when she... When you can't see her, she's talking in his ear. Uh, but, like, when he goes back, you're, you're using time travel, right? Why can't you take some time to bone up on the past a little bit more? You know, like, yeah. do some studies and stuff like that. Like, here are some clothes and get out. Go. Go back to the past and be lost. It's like, yeah. what, why not give them, like, a month? You're doing time travel. It's okay. But, see, they've got that, that thing where it's got to be, you know, like, that other guy just went back in time, like, you know, yesterday. So when he goes back in time, if he waits a month, then the other guy will have been doing his thing for a month in the past. But then there's the whole parallel timeline thing that they alluded to. So maybe it didn't actually yeah. matter. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Because that's where he's like, there, are, there is a parallel universe or something like that. Yeah. Right? He says that. But it's like that. But that doesn't. I don't know. It's weird. Um, <laughs> well, wait a minute. There you go. They're, they're, uh, they're predicting what's going to happen with the Star Trek reboot right there. Yeah. Maybe yeah. he was in the alternate timeline that gave birth to the alternate J.J. Star Trek. Maybe. And sending them back to Spock Prime's timeline. There you go. That could be. That could be. I mean, I guess that is sort of like the more commonly accepted time travel theory, like scientifically speaking, is what they do in the in the JJ thing movie, where you, if you go back in time, you create a new timeline. Yeah, I think. Well, yeah. so that the past that you're experiencing still couldn't exist without the future that you experienced, but the future that you're going to experience after you go back to the past is immediately going to be different. Right. It's a different timeline and everything like that. It's See, this is where we need Max, because he <laughs> knows all... He's got the time travel thing down cold, he's, you know? It, I mean, it's whatever the story demands of it. That's, yeah. really what the, what, that's really what it is, is whatever right. the story needs... 
if they write themselves into a corner and they suddenly find out that they've screwed up history, the parallel timeline is just in case anything major happened. Like, say, uh, a major war broke out in, uh, you know, in Europe while the show was being filmed. They could be like, oh, well, we couldn't stop that because you're in the alternate timeline and yeah. fix it that way. <laughs> Speaking of time travel in uh, in in television shows or whatever and, and all this stuff, I, I, I should point this out right now just because it's timely. Um, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> Outlander just finished up its first season. Uh, we we've talked about this on the show before, but you know it's it's a show which is run by Ron Moore mm-hmm. and uh, his his second his right hand man his second in command is Ira Stephen Bear kind of a reversal of roles there yeah and uh the last the second to the last episode of the season is written by iris Stephen bear himself and the very last episode of the season was co-written by iris Stephen bear and ron moore that's the first time in like what 15 16 years that that that's happened so that's it's pretty special uh not exactly you know light uh you know a happy-go-lucky fair. It's actually extremely tough to watch. That episode in particular is okay. uh, very, very brutal, but still recommended. I, so. w- I would expect nothing less from the Debbie Downer Ron Moore at this point. <laughs> he, he he doesn't do happy. No, no, I guess not. But hey, it's yeah. not a knock on him either. He's really good at what he does. He is. He is for sure. Yeah. So check that out. Anyway. Um, one other thing about time tracks, which I, I did think was rather weird, something which you brought up, was the idea that um, in the future, uh, now white people are the minority, which is an interesting you know, concept, and, and the, the main character is white, and uh, there's like a thing where they they show him well that was the other thing okay yeah they have like in in the first episode sorry we'll, we'll get to this no other, no this please other thing. but in in the first episode they are kind of like setting up this character and they show like this montage of like his accomplishments and yes. just sort of like things that he does and it's all like the future is the future and he's a future person who does future things, you know? And it's like yep. the most science fictiony thing imaginable because he's like, basically it's 200 years in the future and we've evolved to the point where we're, you know, doing yes. all this stuff. He's like, he's an expert in math, which is standard for people. And he can yeah. hold his breath for an hour and a half because people can do that. And he can meditate and make things move with his mind because that's what people do. That's right. You know, he's like it, Neo, but yeah. in real life. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. very strange that they did that. But in this montage where they're showing him do all these cool standard things, um, they do have one little point where they're like, you know, he's basically like he's white and that's a minority and you know he's uh he's oftentimes discriminated against and they show like one thing where there's like an angry mob and they're calling him like they're like they say it's like blanco yeah blanco the most um like derogatory term of of the time you know yeah so they're calling him blanco and they're saying that that he's white and that's the minority and I don't know if I'm missing something here, yeah. but it seems like all of these people who are like, you're white, 
yeah. are all white. Am I wrong in this? No, you're not. It is something <laughs> that sort of jumps out at you, where you're kind of like, oh, wow, they're going for a different... We're... Wait, no, he's... No, he's still in the majority there in the police HQ right there. That's, Everybody's uh, yeah. white. But then but then it also seemed like there was a lot of times where they were like, oh, man, it must be so hard for you being a white guy. And it's like, you, all of you are white, too. <laughs> you are all, everyone who's saying this. It's like, I'm like, well, what are they doing? Are they, do they think that these people are minorities? I don't understand. They, they could possibly be going for the really, really old school definition where like Italians weren't considered white and the Irish were beneath contempt. That's Maybe kind that's of what, what they were going for. I was for. thinking they were doing, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's almost what it seems like they're doing because yeah. it looks like everyone on the screen who's yelling this racial slur is white, you know? It's yeah. strange. I, it, I, I, don't, I don't know what they were doing in that thing. It, it's a bit odd. Yeah, it, it sort of stands out. That, but again, it speaks to that whole thing where like the concept was ahead of its production value. Where, I guess so, yeah. Although I will give them one tiny note. Like They didn't fully pull it off, but I'll give them one, one tiny note of uh, congratulations in that they didn't feel restrained uh, to have uh, touch devices for you know, like things that you mechanically interacted with, uh, in terms of their user interfaces, like there were certain things where it was waving your hand and it was like biometric recognition on the time travel device and stuff like that. And I'll give them credit that that is you know that was thinking a little bit outside the box as well. Now, granted, the music player is still a CD player, but you know she waves at it at least to get it to stop playing, like that, or, or to to see through the door she you know has a hand gesture and stuff like that i'll give them credit for that yeah and i mean even the the idea of the 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 hologram person and saying like this is a thing which has all of this information on here like an entire database and it's the smallest thing or whatever and it's the size of a credit card i mean that is essentially what we've got now right yeah so that was kind of cool you know yeah it but, is um but yeah i don't know well, any final thoughts on on time tracks? Uh, yes, don't don't bother. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like it's it's one of those things where it's like if it was a little bit cheaper, I'd tell you to bother. But um, it, it's real. It's real. Only power exists in the uh, the nostalgia factor. If you grew up and you know mid mid eighties to late nineties was really your thing in terms of television, it's fun to watch for the you know. The, for the production quality, it'll, it'll take you back in time. There you go. But, you know, it feels like 1993. It looks like 1993, and it should stay in 1993. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement. Um, it, it, it's interesting, I guess, in terms of, of uh, Bennett's career in that you can kind of see uh, his evolution and that he's someone who was not kind of stuck just doing one thing he really was adapting to whatever was going on in the industry at that point in time. And I think we're going to see an even further uh, adaptation in, in terms of his career next week uh, with with uh, his final series. But um, I agree with you that it's not really worth watching at all. Although I will say that um, of the shows that we've done now, this one... D- did seem to have his uh, attention. Um, yeah. 
more than than the other two. He he was much more involved in the writing process. I think he was more involved with creating it and everything like that. Whereas the other ones, I think he was there and he's like, yeah, let's do this idea. Now you go do it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I'll be here kind of watching. You know, with this one, I think it was really sort of a, a his baby in a sense. Sure. And he, it, it had his full attention. So it's kind of interesting in, in that sense, but it's not very good. So we have an email from uh, last week's episode. Oh. Which was on the Invisible Man. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I see. I, I always make fun of us for doing these things, and you know, anytime we're like, "What is this? Isn't that?" And I always say, "Like, there's someone out there who's going to be like, how do you not know this? How can you not know this? You guys are unbelievably terrible at your jobs." And you know, I mean, that's completely legitimate. I, I am. <laughs> Not going to disagree <laughs> with that, um, and but we got an email today with someone pointing this out to us, and I'm surprised we don't get more of these, but uh, Paul emailed us, and he said, I'm currently listening to episode 134, which is the Invisible Man episode, Yeah, and I am hoping you guys were just joking and you knew who David McCallum was. I could see he would have a following. He was one of the co-stars of The Man from Uncle, uh, was featured prominently in The Great Escape, and now stars in NCIS. So thank you, thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. Yeah, for thank sure. you, thank you for listening and thank you for interacting. Yes, I I I, I, I greatly appreciate both of those things. I wish more people would do that. Um, but yeah, no, neither of us knew who he was, and we weren't kidding. Not um, not not at all. Not at all. I, I, and, and I you know, that, that probably speaks more to us than to David McCallum. Certainly, David McCallum uh, is is probably more accomplished than than either of us. But that's a, you know, that, that's a very fair compliment, right Mike. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, like it's, I saw this email while I was at work, and I turned to my coworker, who's you know fairly knowledgeable about uh, such things, and I'm like, uh, you know who David McCallum is. And she's like, nope. And I'm like, well, he was in this show called The Invisible Man, and uh, apparently he was also in Man from Uncle, Great Escape, and NCIS. And she's like, no, no. See, I don't know. Hey, have you seen any of those things? Uh, no, no. no. Uh, although I, I will, I will say that every so often, what I'll do with with some of the older stuff uh, that we go back and we watch is I will ask. Uh, my uncle is very young, relatively speaking, in terms of uncles and stuff like that. And I will ask him because his heyday is just a little bit out of phase with me. And I'll ask him, I'm like, do you know X, Y or Z? And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's sort of my own litmus test of like how how deep should my knowledge be of that time period? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, we get that, you know, I think a lot with with this show and and with, um, you know, at Standard Orbit as well, you know. It's weird, like the the two shows that I do on Trek FM are usually about things which weren't around when I was born. But, you know, it's how it works. Man from Uncle, I I have actually seen a couple of episodes of that because, uh, well, you know, they've got the new movie coming out this summer or uh, Christmas or whatever it is. Yeah. I, I forget, sometime this year, which looks pretty good. Guy Ritchie is directing with the Army Hammer and, uh, uh, um, Superman, it, yeah, Superman's in it. Uh, Henry Cavill, yeah, 
I'm not sure who's playing the David McCallum role, but I guess that would be easy enough to find out. Okay, so it looks like, if I'm not mistaken here, uh, the Army Hammer role in the remake or in the in the movie is who um, uh, uh, David McCallum played in Man from Uncle. Okay, so okay, should have known that. I have I have seen a number of those, uh, well, a few of those from from the beginning of the show because uh, back a few years ago. Um, Man from Uncle, the movie was going to be directed by Steven Soderbergh. That was going to be his last movie, and uh, basically he wanted—I forget what it was—like he wanted George Clooney, and I think Channing Tatum, and then like George Clooney backed out, and Channing Tatum like couldn't do it or something. So basically, he was like, "I'm not interested in doing this movie anymore." Huh. So he left. But even though he was like, "This is going to be my last one," and even though he had like three other movies like in development, even though he he could have just walked away at that point, he's like, "I'm st- I've still got room for one more now." So he made side effects instead, which I think is a fair trade. Have you seen side effects? I have not. Check it out. It's. It's a crazy little murder mystery, weird, twisted. It's very Soderbergh. It's about prescription drugs and, you know, psychotic things. And it's one of those, it's kind of a throwback to sort of the uh, the fatal attraction, basic instinct sort of uh, thrillers. I don't know. But, I, I really think he peaked with that itchy and scratchy episode that he guest directed. And it's just all been downhill since there. Steven Soderbergh? <laughs> no, it's it's from a Simpsons episode. They're watching the itchy and scratchy behind the scenes uh, DVD or or whatever, and the, it's the cartoon cat and mouse. And the the cat sitting there goes, "I thought this was fine, but Steven Soderbergh wants so many takes." Really? Just, oh yeah, man! Just, see now, I want to see that. It is just this throwaway <laughs> joke in an episode of The Simpsons from like two decades ago. That's good. I like that. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I love Soderbergh. I'll see anything that he does. And because of that, I was like, well, I need to get you know caught up on Man from Uncle. I need to see what he's doing. So we watched a bunch of episodes, uh, me and my wife, and we liked him quite a bit. And then we found out that he was leaving, and we're like, screw that show. <laughs> that, that <laughs> Let's seems watch like The a, Nick instead. <laughs> that seems like a really fair way to judge television. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, well. Um, but yeah, and NCIS, I haven't seen that. I'm sorry. I, I want to because doesn't it like fit into some sort of crazy continuity? Um, uh, it's Isn't it like CSI for the Navy or something? Yeah, yeah, but it is like created by like, well, the guy who did Quantum Leap. So I think it actually fits into Quantum Leap continuity somehow. I don't know. I'll don't- have to go to poobala.com and see Don't what they you say. dare try to make me feel obligated to watch NCIS. It's I'll a go weird back. thing. I'll watch it's... the Man from Uncle episodes. I'll go watch The Great Escape. Don't you dare pull me into a procedural crime drama. That's, well, now that, they've that's got... a line too far. Well, now they've got the, the one, the Los Angeles one, right? Which has uh, Chris O'Donnell and LL Cool J. Yes, yes. His hat is like a, sh- a shark's fin, so there's that. <laughs> And then the the other one, the New Orleans one, which is out now, stars Scott Bakula. That yeah, no, I'm not. I'm done with crime dramas, and so should okay. CB, they should. No, I refuse. All right, I refuse. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I'm not rushing out to to see it either, but you know, 
one day. I mean, now that I know that David McCallum was in it. I'll yeah, I feel, it. I feel obligated now that we've been horse-whipped. <laughs> yeah. So thanks, thanks, Paul. We really do appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if you or any of our other listeners uh, notice that we, we say something which is incorrect or uh, maybe uh, don't give something the, the, or someone the credit that they're due, feel free to point it out to us because, uh, you know, it's definitely something which, which should be brought to our attention. Well, it's been fun talking about time tracks today, but this isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week, so here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. No doubt. You would always go director's cut. I would always go director's cut because this because is what the director, right. director intended. It's art. This is not a democracy. It's a cheerocracy. And the director is the cheer-tater. Earl Grey. You know, what the dressing up and what the, the clubs and the meetings and the podcast, you know, all really comes down to is just finding and talking and being around other people who enjoy something that you really enjoy. The Orb. I'd like to see the Borg assimilate Ferenginar, and then they would become bankers. You know, I could see... Oh my gosh, I could see drones. Yeah, yeah. The the world's (laughs) strictest bank ever. I'm sorry, you have not paid your loan. You will be assimilated. (laughs) The nanites go into you. Yes! (laughs) The ready room. Oh man, I can see, instead of Kirk, it's Mike Ditka throughout the entire (laughs) It's just like chewing the whole time. Like, yeah. Edith Killer must... Die. Oh, she's gotta <laughs> die. Commentary, Trek Stars. The theme song, I mean, I, I guess it's cool. The thing that, that I was kind of struck by was the opening title sequence itself. Yeah, it makes no sense. <laughs> it's literally that. like all three of them are running for their lives. The 602 Club. But I loved the scene with... Um, Lucy and Tumnus when they first meet because mm-hmm. that's a very yeah. vivid description in the book um, and I felt like they, they really nailed that in terms of the way it looked and and the CGI was advanced enough so that um, James McAvoy really looked like he had fawn legs and literary treks tell us about coming up with this this story for the crew of the Enterprise, where did it come from for you, and what were some of your inspirations for diving into these characters once again? Well, Troublesome Minds was such a book that it left me with, as if I I didn't quite finish. I'd come up with Troublesome Minds as an idea that the the idea was what pushes Spock toward Colinar. Axonar, the official podcast. There is more to life than just get up, go to work, come home, watch TV, go to bed, repeat until dead. There's more to life than that. And I I believe that uh, that's the essential magic of Star Trek is that it says it it appeals to that, that urge to get up off the couch, walk out the front door and go see what's out there. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, 
Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. One way that you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find all of our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you want to contact us, like Paul did, you can uh, fill out the form on trek.fm slash contact, or you can send us a voicemail. Uh, just look on the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. You can find us on Twitter. The network is on Twitter, at trekfm. Network's also on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, where you'll also find the Babel Conference. Just type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click the discussion tab on the menu bar. Uh, John, where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can find me crawling around the internet on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, uh, and you can also find me... Uh, Pulling a, my regular shift uh, every Thursday on Words with Nerds, a podcast that I do with my buddy Craig. And you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, or you can find the show, us, on Twitter, all at, at ComTrackStars. Uh, you can also email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com, or uh, you can find me doing Commentary TrackStars Off-Topic and Commentary TrackStar Babies on CommentaryTrackStars.com, or right here on Trek FM doing Standard Orbit with Drew. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring Commentary, TrekStars, and all of our shows to you each week, and our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. John, what, what book do you have for us today? Uh, well, this uh, week we have uh, The Bone Collector by Jeffrey Deaver, narrated by the famous David McCallum. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Lincoln... He's all over the place. How did <laughs> we is. not know who this guy was? I, You know, it was really the narration on Audible that I should have known about. Yeah. And uh, it, the, the summary is that Lincoln Rhyme, former head of NYPD forensics, was the nation's foremost criminalist until an accident left him a quadriplegic. He remains bitter and reclusive after the accident until a criminal report of a corpse found buried on a deserted West Side Railroad track catches his attention. His search leads him to the Bone Collector, whose obsession with old New York is apparent in every clue he leaves for rhyme and partner Amelia Sachs. Twice nominated for an Edgar Award, author Jeffrey Deaver delivers another fine tale of suspense. Have you, have you read this book? I have not. Have you seen the movie? I have not. But I know Denzel's in it, so I should. Yeah, it's directed by Philip Noyce, the guy who did like uh, Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger. Oh, okay. Um, I don't remember much about it. I remember going to see it at Yorktown with my friend Matt and his wife, Michi. And I remember 
the bad guy in the end, the big twist being that it's the guy who's in everything. Like he's in an episode <laughs> of Enterprise and stuff like that. Like the one where they go back in time to like the present day or whatever. That guy, he's the bad guy. Spoilers, if you know who I'm talking about. And that's about all that I remember about that thing. I remember I, thinking it was good. I would love I would love to be that guy. I would love yeah. to be the guy that's the go-to bad guy because you're always going to get work. He's the guy, he, the thing that I always remember him from, like he's one of uh, one of the, the, the dudes that, that uh, Liam Neeson hangs out with in the Taken movies. You know how he's got his yeah. group of buddies? Uh-huh. He's, yeah. he's one of those dudes. But the thing that I always remember him from is uh, Escape from L.A., where he's like, this makes this an aiming device that allows you to shut down anything. Ah, uh, yep, yep, that yep, guy. yep, yep. <laughs> that awful movie. I remember that movie's amazing. Anyway, no, it's not. Um, well, even though you haven't seen the movie, you can get the book for free on Audible since you listen to Trek FM. Yeah. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audio book of your choice along with the thirty-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and the network. All right. Well, we're nearly done with our our, um, adventure through the career of Harv Bennett. We've only got one show left, and and this is a pretty uh, eclectic career, all things considered. And the, the last one is, is no exception. It is a animated series which aired on um, the WWWB <laughs> back in the day. I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember this, this show at all? It's called Invasion America. Oh, yeah. And I do remember remember that show. All right. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're going to be talking about it next week, which has, I mean, hey, a lot of stuff. It's got Leonard Nimoy doing a voice in here, so as well as other Star Trek people. So um, we'll be talking about that next week. Mm -hmm.